On January 21st of this year, officers Jason Rivera and Wilbert Mora of the New York City Police Department were gunned down while responding to a domestic disturbance between a mother and her son. After the son shot the two responding officers, he attempted to flee the scene before being shot and killed by a third officer. Being just one incident in a string of police shootings this year, I sat down with retired New York City police officer Gus Kabarkas to discuss what he believes really happened to these unsuspecting officers. Additionally, he gives us some very candid opinions about how it felt to walk that thin line between the good people and the evil ones, and he also touched on the biggest threat to policing today. A Colombian immigrant who learned English by watching children's shows on TV, he also served in the Army before becoming a police officer. Man, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. It was a really good one. From Carry the Load, these are Lessons from the Front. Stories of service and sacrifice from our military, veterans, first responders, and their families. Let's just let's just jump into it, Gus. Let's do it. <laughs> so so Gus, the uh, you know, I would have said New Yorker just because of the accent, but it's you're actually the Colombian by way of New York, way of New York. into Texas. Yes, sir. So your parents came here from Colombia, you said. Were you born here or were you born in Colombia? No, I was born in Colombia. I'm originally okay. from a city, a coastal city in Colombia. It's uh, Cartagena. Okay. So I was born there. Uh, came to uh, New York. Uh, we settled in Queens, New York. This is in 1978. Which is a lot different than a coastal town in Colombia. Yes. Got here in December. Winter. Never saw snow in my life. First time in I remember arriving at LaGuardia Airport. My mother was like, you have to bundle up. So she sits me up, puts a hood over my head, and I looked like that kid from uh, Christmas Story. <laughs> well, couldn't see where I was going. Uh, you know, got settled in New York at that time. Um, didn't, didn't know how to speak English. So my first summer here, the way I learned how to speak English was watching uh, Electric Company, Sesame Street. Really? That's how I learned how to speak English. And you were how old? I was, at the time, I was seven years seven years old. Okay. And this was, you said this was 78? 78, yeah. Okay. Seven, yeah, uh, going back. 78 Eight, nine okay. years old, yeah. And, and were your, I mean, anyone who's, who was alive during that time remembers the Medellin, well, and I really into the 80s, remembers the Medellin cartel yes. and Pablo Escobar, which... Um, is a fascinating story yeah. to study. Uh, and I, I actually remember um, went out with a girl in, in high school whose family left because of that. They left Bogota. Okay. Um, did your parents, were they fleeing anything like that or were they just coming to no, they just wanted a, a better, better life and just got out in time? What was the... So where we used to live, it wasn't really affecting us at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents wanted a better life, obviously for us and for mm -hmm. them. And listen, this country is a great country of opportunity. You could be whatever you want to be. Mm -hmm. And like I said, we settled in Queens. At that time, the neighborhood uh, was predominantly Irish, Italian. So it was a mix. Mm -hmm. um, you know, lived in a four-story apartment. Um, we didn't have the luxuries that, you know, that I have now with my family. But it was a simple life. You know, my father was started as a dishwasher. Fast forward. He retired from one of the biggest unions in New York City, you know. So when 
I hear people tell me that this country is, you know, there's no opportunities here. There is, just got to grab them. You well, work and, for them. And, and the, you know, the perspective that you and your family have obviously is very different because y'all were, um, you, you came to this country specifically for opportunity. Whereas somebody like me was born in this country, doesn't understand anything different mm -hmm. unless I make it a point to get involved in something that opens my eyes to that or, you know, join the Marine Corps as I did and travel the world and see, oh my God, we've got it. We've got it pretty good. Pretty good. So, and the reason I was asking the question about why they left is I didn't know if that served as a platform for your service in the army, and then, and then on to uh, well, the reason law I, enforcement. I, you know, when I was seventeen, I didn't want to go to college, and for me, joining the uh, the army, you know, the U.S. Army was a way for way for me to give back to this great nation. Mm -hmm. Since you know they gave me, they gave my parents myself my brothers so much it's like hey let me join the army uh, at the time i didn't know what i was getting into but best thing i did join the army i you know stationed here and went through basic uh went to ait in fort sam fort sam houston ait was, would be advanced infantry uh, training and training uh advanced individual training advanced individual training yes okay and uh in the army i got weird then, names in the army in the army yeah i know <laughs> and then uh, ended up uh stationed in fort hood uh, I was a medic with the assigned to an armor unit. I was with the famous uh, Second Army Division, Hell on Wheels. Really? Which in World War II, uh, General Patton was uh, famous. Yeah. I was with that unit. We were the only unit in the Army at the time that we wore our uh, patch over our heart. Everyone else wore it on their uh, shoulders. Um, so yeah. I did not know that. Second, uh, Second Army Division, Hell on Wheels. Okay, so Second Armored Division wore their patch over their heart rather than on their sleeve. That I I, I was never aware of that. So mm. I, that's what I love about doing this is because <laughs> sometimes I, I learn things that uh, you know I just never even thought about. Yeah. So, all right. So you were a medic in the army, and then after you be uh, after you left the army, you went back to New York. I went back to New York. Yeah, I joined the uh, New York Army National Guard, and while I was still on active duty, I took the. Uh, Exam for the New York City Police Department. Mm -hmm. Totally forgot about it. Went back to New York. I started working um, working for United Parcel Service. Did that for about two and a half years. I was driving for them. Uh, fast forward to uh, 1992. Get a letter from the New York City Police Department. Hey, uh, you're interested. Went through the whole process. And in January 13th of 1992, I joined the... Uh, at the time, there was three separate police departments in New York. Mm -hmm. You had the New York City Transit Police, you had the New York City Police Department, and then you had the New York City Housing Police Department. So the New York City Transit Police Department was responsible for the subway in New York City. And that's it, just the subway? Just the subway, and we had part of the, you know, some of the street areas. Okay. So, of course, with my luck, um, I was online. There was another gentleman in front of me. He chose uh, the NYPD. I was getting ready to choose the NYPD, and uh, you're either you have a choice, either tr uh, New York City Transit or New York City Housing. I was like, you know what? Let me go to the New York City Transit Police. So went through the academy six months, uh, and then we had an additional um, three weeks with the New York City Transit Police, and then 
started working. I started working at uh, District 1, which was 59th Street, Columbus Circle. I used to work 8 at night to 4 in the morning, patrolling the subways. I was a 26-year-old. You want to see, you know how they say things happen after midnight? Nothing good happens after midnight, you mean? Oh, yeah. <laughs> My kids have heard that, that expression a time or two. And if there's a full moon out there, watch out. <laughs> really? Okay, yeah. so 8, 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. That in the morning. That, I'm sure there's some really good stories oh, yeah. there. You know. Before we get into any, you know, what any of mm-hmm. those stories might be and any of your experience there, I actually want to back up a little bit. Uh, or fast forward, if you will, to just a, a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And in New York City, uh, obviously a well-publicized um, shooting. Yes. Um, and for those who, who aren't aware, I, I can set at a layman term the, the scenario. Um, mother and son were squabbling. Um, she calls the, uh, the police, said, it's not an emergency, but I, I've got some concerns about, you know, about my son. Um, he's threatened me. I've just come off of a uh, a medical um, uh, issue or procedure. They show up. Health and welfare check is the way I understood it. Mm-hmm. Um, you have two, one brand new, two brand new They're officers. They're brand new officers, yes. And you know the uh, the experience one only had about four years, as I understand it. They check short of the long is they check on the mom. The mom's okay, but she asked them to check on the son goes back into his room, he comes out, opens fire. Both of these young officers are killed. Uh, One that night died of his wounds, Mm -hmm. the other a few days later. When you saw all that, what was going through your mind? What what popped into into your world? that had been maybe suppressed from your time on the streets? You know, I've been retired now. I'm coming up on 10 years. Retired in uh, 2012. And my phone, I was at an event with my wife. My phone started blowing up. Hey, did you hear about the uh, two officers in the 3-2 precinct that were ambushed? And it always goes back to, hey, that could have been me. Because I was put in those type of situations you know, always you get a, a domestic dispute, you get a you know radio run of a domestic dispute, you get there. Um, I spoke to one of the uh, chiefs that responded to that scene, which at the time we were both cops, sergeants together. And I spoke to him a few weeks later, and he saw the, um, these two officers were, uh, were wearing body cams. And he basically told me they were executed. And to me... You know, I think the the mother should have warned when she called 911. She told him, hey, my son has a gun. And it turned out he had several guns. Okay. What's interesting about that, though, is according to the reports that I read, you know, and, and a lot of this is mm-hmm. media, you know, related. I, I obviously don't have access to some of the things you would have access to. She knew that he had a gun when he was in Baltimore. And when he moved to New York, um, as the reports go, she said, you are not to bring any guns with you. Now, whether or not that's the truth, nobody knows. Um, And so 
you know, as, as a parent, it's easy to side with her and, and say, I believe her because you tell your child to do something and you expect them to do it. And then you Correct. don't necessarily inspect what you expect. You just expect them to, to follow through with what they told you they would do. Right. But when you tell me that they were essentially ambushed and the body cam says that they were executed, that's a whole different level. It, it, I mean, it almost sounds like there could have been some knowledge on her part. I, I, I think she knew. I mean, I wasn't there at the scene, but from speaking to a good friend of mine that saw that video, I mean, not that they were set up, but she could have warned. I mean, when she made that initial phone call to 911, she could have said, hey, my son has is known to carry guns in the past. That could have, mm-hmm. you know, maybe alert these two officers and maybe get some other units. So in the NYPD, we have uh, we have a specialized unit. It's called emergency service um, unit. And if you know that there's someone that has a gun that's barricaded, usually take a step back, wait for backup. You get they're like they're a SWAT basically. Right. So, and, you know, not, I don't want to Monday night call back these two officers, but like I said, it was maybe the times now, you know, where they're like, hopefully they didn't second guess themselves. You know, they went there with the right attitude, you know, the right mindset. Hey, they went there to help. They went there to help. That's all they went there. And they basically got executed. I mean, they got ambushed and they got executed. That's how I, you know, how I look at things. It's... Yeah, and, and you, you know, when you start talking about all that stuff, I mean, whether you're whether you're on the side of the police officer or whether you're on the side of someone who um, has been harmed, whether justly or unjustly mm-hmm. by a police officer, everything is so polarized now in that regard. I, I mean, I keep looking at this going, God bless these young men and women who ignore all of that and they have somewhat of an idealistic approach and say, I get all that, but I can still make a difference. I I mean, I look at these young officers nowadays, and yeah, when I came out in 1992, New York, that was pretty much the crime was starting to take, you know, started to go down. But there was still a lot of crime going on. But back then, we were allowed to do our jobs. Where now... Um, you know, politicians. Like I tell, I, I used to tell someone like, hey, I couldn't come and tell a doctor how to do his performance surgery. I never went to school for that. But it seems like everyone, general public, hey, well, cops should do this. You know, oh, why did a cop, how come the cop doesn't shoot that gun out of his hands? Listen, I'm not John Wayne. <laughs> so, and that's what I try to, Explain to people, I mean, even family members that when I became a police officer, just for the mere fact that I joined the NYPD, the other thing was, well, you know, all you guys do is stop black and Hispanics. That was, I'm looking at myself, I'm like, okay, Hispanics, go, where are you going with that? And I like to tell people, listen, uh, New York City is predominantly black and Hispanic. You know, you get robbed. I don't care if you're black, white, Hispanic, yellow. 
I get to the scene, you're gonna ask me, first thing I'm gonna ask you, hey, who robbed you, sir? Is a male block, you know, whatever. I call. need you to describe him describe. so that I know who to look for. Who to look for. It's common sense, it's police work one on one. If you told me it's a male Hispanic, okay, I'm not gonna go look for male white. You know, so it's just but they've gotten away from from that because it's everything is it's polarized. You know, it's breaking and like you gotta realize in New York <laughs> you have when you say Hispanics, you have Colombians, you got Ecuadorians, you got Peruvians, you got every nationality. Okay. Colombians come in all colors and sizes. Dominicans come in all so it, so I laugh because you know, I don't, the media just yeah. We want to we want to yeah. compartmentalize everyone, <laughs> and you know now more than ever that can't be done. No. I mean, I heck, I even had uh, you know like the twenty three and me. Um, somebody in my family did that. It's entirely possible that I've got some African yeah. descent in me. Is it, you know, based based on there, and I'm yeah. like, well, I don't really look like I would have African descent. If, if my kids were to walk in, if my daughter was to walk into the studio right now, like. That's your daughter? <laughs> so that was like the biggest joke when she was born. You know, cops, we always joke around. They were like, hey, who's the father? Was it the UPS guy, the mailman? I'm like, <laughs> all good. Yes, it's my daughter. So it's, you got to have thick skin and all Oh, world. yeah. yeah it's, um, so, so tell me about um, how, when you saw that, tell me how that compared to when you were walking the beat or your service in, in general. I mean, it brought me right back. I mean, it, and you always think back, and I think every police officer thinks like that, where, hey, that could have been me. You know, every time I left for work, the one thing my wife, you know, when I got married, my wife and I, no matter how mad, if we could have had an argument before I left for work, we would always say, hey, love you, I'll see you in the morning. You know, we never, and then I would get to work, give her a call, hey, I'm here. I'll speak to you in the morning. Um, that, I mean, that just brings back, like, that could have been me. You know, would I maybe done things differently, but you don't want a Monday night quarterback. You know, these, I mean, these these two officers, I mean, it's just. Did, did you ever get to a point where you felt like it's about to be me? Yeah. Oh, I, I was then I was put in those situations many times, but I keep saying somebody was looking down on me. I think the big man upstairs, my mother, you know, because it came to those situations where it got close, but it never got to the point where was I shot at? No, but it came, you know. Well, okay, so you you were never shot at then, which. In a 21-year New York City career, that's, is that well normal? Is that just fortunate? Depending, depending um, we, I mean, we responded to, like, of jobs, you know, uh, shots fired. Mm -hmm. We would get there, and you would hear the shots in the background. But never, and I was very fortunate, you know. I was also very fortunate that I was never injured on the job. You know, I had, yes, little broken hand and stuff like that. Right. But nothing, like I said, my 21-year career, I saw many police officers that got killed, others that were maimed doing, you know, car accidents, or, I mean, I was working one year where an officer got hit, they threw a bucket of uh, spackle, a 
off a roof and hit in the head. Killed. Yeah, we call it airmail in New York. They threw it off a building. Intentionally. You, intentionally, yes. And, and do you feel like the police officer in, uh, that we're talking about was targeted? I, yeah. Or he just happened to be the, the one He there. was targeted because of his uniform, what he stood for, you know. And that's, you know, it's we were like a magnet, basically. You know, we were like the line between good and evil. So how do you, in, in good conscience, in good attitude, go into the office, which is a four-dimensional world around you every day, and say, these people, there are some people here that appreciate this, but this guy spits on me and that guy you know, spits on me and, and she doesn't care. How do you in good conscience do that? You, you put that behind you and then you identify the people that want you there. Listen, the, the bad people are always going to hate, hate you because what you stood for. Even the people that gave me the hardest time was my own. I was called a sellout. I was called the white devil. <laughs> Many times we're like, hey, uh, you're out of uniform. What do you mean you're out of Because you forgot your white hood. I was compared to the KKK. <laughs> so, because, you're, because you're standing for law and order. Yeah. So, so you laugh. The, the job, uh, you know, when I say the job, that's a term that in the NYPD we all, we all use. The job makes you very cynical. After a while, it's like, okay, you know, n- what makes sense doesn't make sense. So, and I mean, but you learn, you know, you learn from it. Okay. So give me the, you know, the privileged white guy. And of course I have very hot sports opinions about that. Um, But there's no question that I was, I was born into a world that I didn't have much for want. Absolutely readily Mm -hmm. admit that I am. I am absolutely fortunate given the world that I was born into. And when I hear stuff like that, it makes me think, well, what in the world do they want? And when they being the ones that are critical of you for putting yourself in danger to protect anyone, regardless Mm -hmm. of, of their background, what would they prefer that, that no one does anything and we just revert to anarchy? And, And, you know, you brought up a good point. Because the NYPD is the most diversified police department in the yes. country. Hey, we have every nationality. Uh, I mean, so when I was a supervisor, I had... And if I'm not mistaken, not to cut you off, but the, the, the last time there was a legitimate ambush, that was an yeah. Asian cop, if I'm not, yeah, if so I'm not mistaken. Yes, the, so uh, the two officers that were, um, that were just ambushed, um, both, you know, uh, one was Dominican, the other one of Puerto Rican descent. Not that it matters. Listen, we're all Americans. Absolutely. The officer that ended up shooting uh, the perp, he was from, uh, a, uh, he, I believe he's Indian, it's of Asian descent. which of, is cra- of, of India? From India, yeah. Wow. Which okay. is crazy. So when I was a supervisor in the NYP, I had, I have a, uh, uh, an officer of Chinese descent who spoke Mandarin. I had another one that spoke Cantonese. I had a gay officer. I had a Jamaican officer. I had a Puerto Rican officer. I had Irish. I had Italian. So, so we laugh. I mean, I used, 
you know, when people say, oh, the NYPD is the most racist department, <laughs> what are you talking about? At one time, the NYPD, just to please the community, they transfer, there was an incident in the 7 old precinct in Brooklyn South where um, they transfer a whole bunch of African-American officers because they wanted to please the community. And they were forced there to go work there. A lot of them didn't want to work in the area. So it doesn't, to me, it's, it's just... And, um, and that area was a was a predominantly... Yeah, you have a, a Haitian, Jamaicans. Okay. You know, but it doesn't matter. You know, people always, oh, well, if we have officers that look like us, they would, listen, you break the law, you break the law. I don't care what color you are. Sure. If you rob somebody, you know, for example, many times, you know, I would get to the scene when I was a police officer. Uh, I happened to be Hispanic. The first thing he would say to me, hey, man, bro, you're one of us. I'm like, I'm not one of you. I go, I don't go around shooting people or robbing people. So how can I be? So, and they would try to use that line on you. Oh, you did this to me because you pulled me over because I was Hispanic. I'm like, no, you just went through a red light. You almost hit that person over there. That's the reason why. Or the reason why I pulled you over was because your license plates are missing. You have a broken tail light, but they don't want to hear that. They don't want to be accountable for their actions. Accountability. Accountability. That's all what it comes down to. You talked about how thankless of a position it can be. Um, tell me about a time, though, where you said it's worth it. Man, it, I was working in the 10th Precinct, which is the west side of Manhattan. It's, uh, it's called Chelsea, that section of uh, the west side. Uh, I was working at 4 to 12, uh, basically working 4 p.m. till midnight. I just happened to be covering uh, another shift. Um, we used to have these um, SRO, single-room uh, occupancy hotels for homeless people. Um, we get a phone, uh, we get a uh, run of a gentleman on the rooftop of this building. He wanted to, basically he wanted to jump off the building. I get there. My partner is with me at the time. Uh, we get up to the roof. So he's standing on the ledge. So, and I'm trying to describe it. So here's a wall. He's standing on the other side of that wall. Basically, he's about seven stories, uh, seven stories high. Um, talking to the gentleman, I go, hey, what's going on? Now, the whole time, he was facing me. I'm speaking to him. Basically, he wanted to killed himself because he just found out he was uh, HIV positive. This is 19, around, uh, 1997, 98. Talking to him, I told my partner, I go, hey, yeah, do you have emergency services unit coming here? You, he goes, yeah, I just called them. You know, I could hear him on the radio, see if they could set up an airbag. So keep talking to the gentleman, and I'm telling him, hey, man, it's not that bad. Listen. Don't, don't do it, whatever. So he just gave me this look that he goes, I'm going. He basically starts turning around, facing down towards the other street. I looked at my partner. I go, hey, he's going. As he was starting to go, leaning forward, I jump over this wall, grab him. My partner grabs me, 
by my gun belt. Now, he's leaning halfway out. I'm holding on to him. He was going. There he was, was going. no... I looked at my partner. You know, I said some expletive words. I go, hey, pull me back. And he was, you know, pretty... Guy worked out. He pulled both of us back. You know, the words, you know, hugged the guy. I said, hey, man. Hey, he was apologizing to me. Hey, I almost took you. I said, hey, it's all good. So that's what... And that was like a, a routine isn't, job for us. Isn't that interesting, though, that it now turns around and he starts apologizing to you? Yeah. And, I was, and it kills me because people, hey, cops are, um, you know, they're racist, they're this and that. You know, a week later, I'm doing a, um, a protest, which is crazy. It was... And when you say doing a protest, you mean working the event to keep working the protesters. The yeah, I'm, I'm I'm working this protest, and I was called. Oh, um, it was, um, which is ironically brings me back to the story. The guy, you know, he was he was gay, but the protest I was being called. Oh, cops are homophobic, and all. And I'm like, hey, well, last week, you know, I just saved this guy, and I didn't listen. I didn't do it for the money. I didn't do it for the glory. It was just part of the job. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the hold on. There's so much to unpack there, Gus. <laughs> okay, so this this guy is, I mean, there, there was no, uh, it wasn't a ruse of any kind. He was going. He was going, yeah. And had you not done what you did and your partner not been able to, to grab, grab your me. belt and, yep. and hold both of you, he was dead. Yeah. And so because of your actions, this guy who thinks the world is over because he was he had contracted uh, HIV, mm-hmm. now turns around to you and says, "I'm sorry, I put you in that position." Mm-hmm. And then a week later, you're actually protecting the right of people to protest Process, under yeah. the Constitution, yeah. and they're telling you how bad you are. Yeah, I'm a racist. I'm a homophobic. You know, <laughs> golly, I mean. Yeah. Okay, so I, I can take that in a lot of different ways, but I, I want you to tell me what, you, you in back-to-back weeks, you saw extremes happening. Yeah, two extremes. What What did you walk away with? What what's What goes through your mind about people, about life at that point? There's, there's a lot of uninformed people. They don't, they see everything through a lens. You know, and listen, I don't know everything, but you know, you have to open up your mind. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just crazy. So, if your daughter walked through the door right now, mm-hmm. and she said, "You know, you're trying to to give her the condensed version of what she needs to take away from this very thing," what are you telling her? I always tell my daughter, treat people the way you want to be treated. Just the simple golden rule. Simple golden rule. Okay, I don't care if the gentleman there that's mowing a lawn, the same way you speak to that gentleman that's mowing a lawn, you speak to the CEO of a huge, you know, large company. And people have told me that, hey, you know, Gus, you you don't change. You're the same. You could be talking to, you know, simple homeless person, the same way you speak to, you know, obviously depending on the situation, but it's just, I treat everybody the same. I don't care what color you are. Listen, if, and I had this thing in the NYPD, if you're a piece of garbage, you're a piece of garbage. 
if you're a straight shooter, we're going to get along. And I always treated people like, those work for me. I mean, 55 years, <laughs> you're not going to wood. <laughs> so what's, what's interesting about that is, is that, um, you know, you were talking earlier, you know, and we've got these colors that everyone is associated with, white and black and brown and yellow. It's, no one's golden. No. Why not? Should, shouldn't that be what we're striving towards is the golden rule and getting everybody to be golden people? Listen, we all bleed the same. We all going to end up in the same spot, either buried or, you know, depending on what your choices are. But, you know, we're not here forever. We're here for a very short time in this world. I've been very fortunate. I mean, I've seen a lot of friends, you know, and I've seen a lot of death in the police department. You know, I've seen... You know, 18-year-old kid overdose. You know, at the time it was, um, back then it was ecstasy. You know, we had all these clubs. And mother shows up. Were you a dad at that point? Um, no, I was, I was not a dad yet. Uh, this kid basically, we're working in the 10th precinct on the west side of Manhattan. We had this club called The Tunnel. At that time, ecstasy was huge. And we, it was pouring rain. You know how it rained here last Monday? Mm-hmm. That just, it's like, it was one o'clock in the morning. My partner and I were driving, and I see someone laying on the, on the sidewalk. And I go, tell my partner, hey, it was Mark. I go, hey, Mark, stop for a minute. There's a, guy, a kid laying in on, on the street. Get out of the car. Try to, you know, shake him. Nothing. We call uh, EMS, we call uh, the ambulance. Ambulance shows up, they start working on him. Okay, they take his temperature. It was at 100 and, 108. Mm. That was his body temperature. We knew where the kid was. He was inside of this club, the tunnel. And what happened was this kid OD'd on ecstasy. And what they, he did it inside of the club. What they did, we found out later on, they dragged him out of the club. They threw him outside like, like if he was garbage. Okay. So now the detectives show up. We had to notify his parents. This kid lived outside of New York City. He lived out in Long Island, where I used to live, out in uh, St. James. The mo- you know, detectives get in touch with the mom. The mom thought he was down the street with his friends for a sleepover. So this kid was 60 miles away at a nightclub, and... And what's crazy was you would have parents dropping off their kids at these, they used to call them rave parties. And, you know, we're standing there, and we would ask the parents, i go, hey, uh, you know what you're dropping your kid off here for? He goes, oh, it's a rave party. It's non-alcoholic. I'm like, yeah, but plenty of drugs. People are clueless. <laughs> and we were just like, okay. We knew what was going on inside, and, you know, but, yeah, it's, that was back then. That was, yeah, around 1997, 98. Ecstasy was huge. All these kids. That, that has to be hard to see yeah. young kids like that throw their lives away. Yep. And, you know, New York is a city that never sleeps. I mean, so, like I told you before, I used to work nights. I used to see the people going home from working all day. And then you had uh, the the other crew, like we used to call them, that would just come out, up, you know, 
to do things that were, you know, up to no good. And you could tell, mm-hmm. you know. Something you said just triggered this thought. Did you ever, the the guy that you saved from jumping off the building, is that the last time you ever saw him or heard anything about him? Yeah, never. Uh, you know, and that was, like I said, that was one incident. I had another one, just came back. This is when I was working in the subway. This is at 42nd and 8th Avenue. Like around 3 o'clock in the morning. Keep hearing this, someone like just, it was a woman's voice. And now, you know, I've, you ever been to the subway in New York where mm-hmm. you got to go by the tokens? Sure. So she was laying around the back of the, um, where they sell the tokens, right? So my partner and I, we break up. We go on one side of the, uh, the token booth. Looked around. She was going into labor. Oh, my goodness. Okay. At the time, that was when crack was the big hit. So she was she was giving birth. So, you know, we get the ambulance there. And, and she the implication was, by what you said is that she was a crack addict. She was that? a crack addict. But she was so high. As we put her on the stretcher, we got, got the, you know, she gave birth. She was more worried about her sneakers and yeah, she didn't realize that she just had given birth. So you asked me if I ever like went back to the people that with her I did. You know, those kids, you know, she had twins. She gave birth to twins that day in the subway, right on literally on the floor. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is in nineteen ninety. Man, 1994. You know, so two days later, I want to say, hey, let me see how these kids are doing. You know, so I went by the hospital, and she was still, you know, she was coming down from her high, but she didn't realize that, you know, she just given birth to two. And I always think, I go, how did those kids turn out? You know, that always, and I'm sure I'm not the only police officer that's been through situations like that, but you always wonder, hey, whatever happened? Just like, you asked me before, did you ever get back? No, but I always wonder what happened to that person. That's that's an unclosed loop. Unclosed loop, yeah. Of of your job, or you know, you know of your your career as a police officer, I would think that it would be a lot more rewarding if you knew the positive outcomes or just the outcome. The outcome, yeah. And listen, we don't do it for the money. We don't do it for the glory. It's just a job. <laughs> job that. Unfortunately, you know, it's gotten a bad rap. Yeah, listen, maybe in the past it was, but like everything else, time changes. And uh, if I had to do it all over again, I mean, yeah, I would do it. I mean, it was a job. It provided for my family. Yeah, but it's much more than a job. It's a very noble profession. That is why. You swore an oath. Oath. And that's the difference between, in my opinion, I mean, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you on that because I mm-hmm. don't think it's just a job. When you take an oath, as a doctor does, as a mm-hmm. lawyer does, as someone in the military, as a, as a police officer, that's a big difference. That's not just a job. Yeah. That's a commitment. That's a commitment. And it's, uh, you know, listen, you're basically, you could take someone's life, which is, I was very fortunate I never had to do that. Came, came to some close to some situations like that, but you know, 
it's yeah, it's it's, it's a tough job. It's I mean the divorce rate, uh, suicides. Yes. I mean, you know, listen, my wife and I, we've been happily married, coming up on twenty nine years. That's unheard of in law enforcement. <laughs> I mean, they're out there, but it's. You know, and everyone thinks, and, of, and you should be commended for that. You should be congratulated for that. I mean, you two are, like you said. I mean, that's an anomaly. No, it, it's and everyone thinks just like you know, with the veterans. Everyone thinks of the veteran, but they don't think of the spouses. Could not agree with you more. Listen, I, like I said, I'm not the man that I'm without my wife. You know, she is. I mean. We, Hasn't been a perfect marriage. I mean, listen, we have our arguments like everyone else. But, uh, you know, we met on a blind date, Friday the 13th, March of 1992. And we've been together ever since. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah it's, yeah. it's crazy because even among Hispanics, okay, we, you know, everyone thinks that racism only is between black and white. Okay, Hispanics, okay. Colombians don't, Puerto Ricans don't like Dominicans, Dominicans don't like this one, Colombians don't like Puerto Ricans and all that. And I always say, oh, I'm never going to marry a Puerto Rican. I'm never going to marry a Puerto Rican. You know what? You married a Puerto Rican. You married a Puerto Rican. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, yeah, so it's crazy. Well, again, I, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I've, I've known you from afar for a while and, and now it's, it's nice to be able to, yeah. to sit down and have yeah, this conversation. A couple of years, yeah. But, but what? Got a little thing here for you, Todd. Oh, okay. oh, I got a little gift. I know you were a Mustang in the Marine Corps. That's uh -oh. right. Well, guess what? I got oh. one too. Just in case you were trying to throw this on the table and get a drink. All oh, right. sir. Look at that. Well, here. Okay, well, well, you you just one up me with the patch. All right, no, nope, it's all good. Hey, I'll let you go all first. All right, there you go. The coin from the New York City Sergeants. Bang! Thank you. Ah, very nice. See, that is awesome. Yeah. I've you know I've got some uh, I've got a good coin collection, it, but I didn't didn't have one from the New York uh, Police Department. So this is yep. awesome. Thank you. No, you're welcome, man. Thank you for having me. I mean, hey, it's always. This is like very therapeutic for me, you know, when people ask me, hey, about my background and all that, because, you know, listen, this country, especially what's going on nowadays, you got to be very proud of this country. I mean, look at me. I'm, you know, parents came here legally. The, the so-called system that everyone complains about, system worked for me. <laughs> I'm a product of New York City public schools. I mean, <laughs> we ain't perfect, but it no. ain't as bad as it could be. No, listen, I tell everyone that has been born in this country, mm -hmm. you need to go out of this country, not on vacation, not to a uh, right. a resort, whatever. Go live there for a couple and let me know how that works. You know, you know it and I know it. Yes. You know, so. Uh, well, who are you going to be carrying this year on the trail? Okay, I always carry... Obviously, every New York City Police Department has been killed. The line of duty, uh, but one specially, um, name is James McNaughton. He was a um, he was the first NYPD officer killed in Iraq. Uh, so James, everybody calls him Jim. He was from uh, Long Island, New York. Um, he volunteered. Uh, he was in Iraq. He was an MP with the Army. 
um, volunteered, was uh, killed by a sniper. Uh, his parents are both uh, retired New York City police uh, officers who I used to work with, um, Billy and uh, wife Michelle. So I was, every memorial day, I remember James McNaughton. Uh, like I said, the NYPD is a, uh, it's a family, you know. Um, obviously, every police officer, but specifically the NYPD, and specifically James McNaughton, staff sergeant. He was a police officer with uh, the NYPD. Well, thank you for sharing us, uh, sharing with us Jimmy's story. Gus, thanks, man. No, really, I thoroughly man. enjoyed it. This was good.